Sure, yeah, no, we'll, we'll go back to, like, the vision for the Tory Text Hackathon. We spoke about Hack the Press, and this week you was hosting Tory Tech Hackathon. And what was the vision? What was the mission? Why was it needed? So the context for the, the landscape is that there's an organization called Campaign Lab, and they do hackathons for labor, um, labor party campaigning, basically. And then there's also a small group of Lib Dem supporters that build software for the Lib Dems. I am interested in political technology or using technology in politics, and I'm conservative. So I didn't really feel very welcome in those groups, especially at the moment, just before the election. There's a lot of kind of tension between left and right and whatever. So there are also groups like Democracy Club and My Society, but they're mostly populated by people from, from the left of politics, which made me feel equally uncomfortable because even though the organization wasn't specifically left wing or right wing, it just, the community was very, very left wing and didn't feel very welcoming to somebody with different views, basically. So Tory text is a, a community that is designed for conservative technologists to feel comfortable um, and free to kind of express their views and build software that helps democracy, uh, which I guess is, comes from the core belief that, Democracy works better when everybody has good tools. So we build open source stuff. Um, I'm a huge open source contributor. Um, I've always loved open source. You know, learned to program, work on open source projects. Um, so I think it, it's kind of a really nice place to start with Tory Text, which is this community of conservative technologists. Um, start by building open source tools that can be used by anyone on the spectrum, just to show that everybody really is welcome to, to join the conversation. You touched on an interesting point about going to other community-hosted hackathons and not feeling entirely welcome, even though it wasn't a politically affiliated hackathon because there was because your it was more about your views and your kind of world view. How did you in Tory Tates try to overcome that? And really, even though yes, you wanted. Um, for conservative technologists to feel to feel welcome and it, that it was a space they could be in, how did you... Because there was a lot of other people with varying views at the hackathon. How did you make them feel comfortable? So I suppose this comes from our experience running a couple of other hackathons. So the last hack, the press hackathon, well, all of them have had a very strong emphasis on making people who are new to hackathons maybe, or who, um, who don't know how to code but are interested. Uh, we've had a big focus in the past on uh, making everybody feel welcome. So there's a lot of men mentorship at the hackathons. There's a lot of, you know, we have previous hackathons, we've had mentors, official mentors that would go around and help the teams, teach people to code a bit and help them hone their ideas to be good for the industry. Um, and then code of conduct and basically just explicitly saying, you are welcome, you are welcome. Um, and then a lot of the the operational and the communication stuff for Tory Text came from from that background. So a lot of it was copy pasted and tweaked. Um, that makes people feel much more comfortable, I think, um, in terms of when they're there. And the way that we ensured that people that came were comfortable, you know, comfortable to come, 
was basically by using the name. The name is a bit um, provocative, Tory text, and a bunch of people decided before reading anything or hearing anything or knowing anything that they hated it because it had the word Tory in it, right? Uh, and to some people, the Tories are the people that kill babies and whatever. So that kind of meant that everybody that came had already gotten past the fact that or didn't feel that Tories were evil and that they didn't feel in general, or they were at least they'd come to terms with the fact that they were going to be in a room of people that are okay with the Tories, with Conservatives. Um, and this isn't necessarily, um, isn't necessarily members of the Conservative Party, it's just kind of centre, centre-right. So I suppose that meant that we had this pre-filtering from having a, a, the name being fairly inflammatory. The website also says that everybody is welcome in the community, in the WhatsApp group, and also in uh, at the events, it's just in brackets, yes, even lefties. So everybody is welcome, and that's kind of repeated throughout the messaging in person and online. And how the caveat do- is that you can't be um, you can't be tolerant to no end. You have to be intolerant of intolerance. So we framed the event in a way and created a context where anyone who was willing to participate in a meaningful way was able to go and do that. Um, but having Tory text be the framing for the event meant that if for some reason somebody started to be belligerent or abusive towards uh, people for their conservative views, then at that point, uh, they could be asked to leave. Yeah, and I suppose that's part of having the the uh, code of conduct, right? The code of conduct is being effectively be nice to people, um, treat people well. And that isn't just be nice to minority groups or be nice to whatever. This is be nice to everyone. And if people start being not nice to white men, then they're not being nice and they're breaking the code of conduct. And one of the things I found interesting was the location because um, obviously we know how London is and it's more left. Do you think maybe some of the cities outside, slightly outside of London or certain parts of London that there would have been um, a a lot more productivity? And it was very productive, but a lot more projects coming out of it, a lot more participants... Um, I think the venue itself obviously is in kind of a labour heartland, but it is trying to be a non-partisan space. It's the London College of Political Technologists. Yeah. I am a resident here and I'm one of three conservative associating residents that, that we've had over 50 or something. Um, so three of 50 is, is pretty low. And I'm okay okay with that personally because the space is trying to be cross-party non-partisan so the only way to do that is by having things from the other side right i'm okay to take a little bit of flack for being one of few if that means that the few is increasing right if it is becoming more balanced and i think actually it kind of worked in our favor for the event because a lot of the signups i think actually came from posting it in the event in we didn't market it particularly heavily just because we wanted to test the waters so we posted it in uh a bunch of the newspeak house or the london college of political technologist community 
which is very left. And then on Facebook, for example, we saw a lot of people sharing it saying, look at these evil Tories doing this evil thing um, in our building. How dare they? And then a bunch of people signed up because not everybody's friends, not everyone in this community's friends are actually kind of left leaning. So um, I think it kind of played in our favor and it gave it a small amount of kind of local morality. People were really shocked that it was happening and that, that helped. I do think as well that some of the people that attended the event wanted to see what the fuss was about. Was it really as terrible as everyone said it was going to be? And that was a really good way to start conversations with people who would otherwise not engage um, with very conservative people. So it, it did sort of bridge uh, the divide in a way. Yeah, I think if we said to all the people in the Newspeak House community, why don't you come to this unfamiliar building in Westminster or this unfamiliar building in some other part that, that you kind of associate with being Tory, more Tory, and you just like. If we'd said that, we'd be less likely to actually get any engagement from them. And this is about, like I said, it's about openness and engaging with everybody. So what better way to do that than to come right to where people already feel comfortable, already feel like it's their home, and quite literally for some of us it is our home. Um, why not come here and invite people in for an open conversation? No, that's that's amazing. Really, that's what Hackathon's about, open conversations. And open conversations about things that are just hard to do or hard to fix. Yeah, yeah definitely. And working collaboratively on problems together, I think that also helps to bridge the divide because especially since we had the open source focus, everyone knew that even though the event itself was a Tory Tech's event, that anyone who found value in the solutions that were created there could potentially use them afterwards, even if they had opposing political um, perspectives. And a little bit about the solutions. I know there, there was a heavy focus on specifically MPs' offices. And in the past, you have spoke about themes and really narrowing down the themes to one theme, and can you uh, talk a little bit about some of the issues regarding MPs' offices and why is that even important to people? So I suppose in the, the hackathon sense, having a theme is really important. And that's something that we learned from the last two Hack the Press events, the fir first of which there was no theme and people were a bit lost. And then the second of which there were three themes and people were equally lost. So we decided to cut down, do one theme, focus on, on that that kind of problem space. We were really thrilled to have a few people from across the political spectrum that have worked in MP offices. So they really had had real knowledge of, of the space. One of whom actually gave us a bunch of problems that she had experienced in the past uh, that she'd kind of maintained this laundry list of projects. So we put that in our open Google Doc so that people could kind of read through, get inspiration from the ideas and in, in the end actually built some of them. Um, so some of the problems, uh, unfortunately, they're kind of boring, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, they're, they're boring problems. They're not interesting, hard problems. They're just administration things. It's, you know, every MP employs maybe three, on average, three, four members of staff. And that those staff members spend their time doing various things. It might be responding to emails from constituents or, um, you know, quite often, so this is called casework. Someone who lives in the constituency might say, hey, MP, I didn't get my housing benefits. Or, hey, MP, 
I'm being threatened. I'm going to get kicked out. Represent me, please. Can you can you help me? Look look after me. And then someone in the MP office will then pick up the phone. They'll call very you know various departments in the government, send emails on their behalf, and basically try and resolve the problem for the constituent. Uh, so that's one one type that's called casework. They also often will do research on behalf of the MP, make sure the MP has all the information they need about the various things they're working in. If they're in a uh, an APPG or party political group, I think, um, then they get research for the issues that are going to be talked about, especially if they're ministers, right? They need researchers, which I suppose is outside of the MP office. But um, there's all this kind of support work that goes into into the MPs. Um, you know, making the MPs actually able to do their job. So one common theme from the solutions was actually calendars because MPs basically have to be very responsive to what's happening. There are lots of, you know, there are agendas published, which is on calendar.parliament.uk, so you can log in and have a look. You can see what's happening today in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, so what's being talked about. That is only published in HTML and PDF. It does, there's no easy way for it to get inputted into an MP's calendar. There's no easy way for them to get an email and get updated with what's going on. So one of the teams built something that scrapes that for a few days in advance that adds it to the calendar so they can see what's coming up because they're used to using Outlook. They will use Outlook. Um, another example was a project that pulled questions out of a PDF or question deadlines, I should say. So when... There's a, a topic is being discussed, perhaps education. Uh, usually about three days in advance, the MPs have to put their questions, uh, proposed questions, and then some of the questions get chosen and then the MPs are allowed to ask it in the house. The deadlines are only published through a PDF file that's available on, um, on the Parliament website. It's updated, uh, I think, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, and... A lot of MPs pay, you know, one of their staff members every, it's on payroll, every, however often this is updated, every couple of weeks, has to go and copy-paste things from this PDF file into the into the MPs' calendar. So this tool that was built will automatically do that. It creates an iCal thing that could be subscribed to uh, from a Google calendar or an Outlook calendar or whatever, and... Hopefully, at some point in the future, they'll be able to filter filter out. You know, I only care about the education things or energy things. So, those are a couple of examples where it's just reducing the workload on the staff that the MP employs, so that they can actually spend their their time that they're being paid, and spend that time on helping people that didn't get their benefits or helping people that have got a scary letter from the government that they might get deported. And I think that's an important thing, right? Making government work more effectively. You uh, said something interesting about those issues are boring. Maybe maybe that's kind of a fault of hackathons, because a lot of a lot of hackathons oversell. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna solve this problem, and our hack is gonna change the world. When what actually we need is like really practical, quote unquote, boring solutions to boring problems, but they are so impactful. And almost can, like, you can use the calendar, um, you can use the technology now, can't you? Yes, yeah, so those two calendar examples yeah. I gave, the, the URLs are all public. So we're writing a documentation at the moment. Um, actually, just when you were called, you called, we were writing writing up some, some documentation to publish after the hackathon uh, that just kind of lists lists what was built and how MPs can start using it in their day-to-day 
lives. And it's interesting that you said that um, perhaps one of the problems about hackathons is they they want to do the the fun, challenging things when there's a lot of you know quote unquote boring problems to deal with. And I think that one of the things we really wanted to get out of this event was a list of projects that were highly applicable and really addressed issues that were being faced. And I think that by having that really um, strong focus on one theme instead of many for the event and having a running list of projects um, that were proposed by people that had faced issues themselves, it meant that the, the solutions that could be created would be immediately applicable. So one of our goals is to be impactful and sometimes doing the sexy solutions um, and fun futuristic thinking is not what's needed. Sometimes what's needed is uh, just working on the things that are right in front of us. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even writing code, right? The, the winning team wrote a Google Doc um, and it's just documenting a bunch of things that MPs need to know. Um, and that's, that doesn't sound like innovation, but it, it's, you know, if an MP says, right, how do I solve this problem? How do I get all of the things from this website into my calendar? Or how do I set up a new office? Because I've just been elected and I've got five days to find some temp staff and five days to find an office and rent it and five days to start hiring and, you know, all this other process stuff. It's really boring, dull, legal and administrative stuff, but there's no documentation out there. There's no central documentation out there for MPs to just read through this checklist of things they need to do. And that's kind of an innovation, just knowing that that needs to be done and then getting a bunch of people that care enough to do it is surprisingly hard. Yeah, it's it, and it's weird, right, considering uh, we're in the developer community and developers always want this tough challenge and when you actually speak to the end users, you find out, oh, they want something really simple that's going to impact their life. And I think you guys go on the money, especially having people that worked in MP offices. They're saying, we want this and this is not available right now. Huh. How yeah, are, um, you spoke a little bit about the follow through afterwards. And this is a, I guess this is the difference between hacks that are, I don't know some computer vision app that does something really amazing or a simple Google Doc. A simple Google Doc is easier to maintain and follow through than a highly complex application. So the nice the nice thing about the winning project, because it is just a Google Doc, is that it's a toolbox of sorts that people can use. And if they find more resources they can add to it and it can basically it, it has a very low uh, bar to entry to uh, use it anyone can take a look at it and get value out of it um, and I think that that in itself is really great about that particular project just because sometimes if you are trying to do something new and great there's a there's a learning curve to be able to do that and in in this case there there isn't it's a really common sense solution to a problem that a lot of people are facing and it's it's difficult for you guys to to really give your full input because you are not the mps but why aren't simple solutions like these 
really created in the MPs' offices or really in government as a whole? Why does it take a hackathon and community members to come up with these simple solutions to help MPs or government as a whole? I think there's there are quite a few things. I mean, for one, very few MPs are software engineers, which and people who aren't software engineers or don't aren't, don't know a lot about technology, they often don't know what's even possible or what would take five minutes or what would take you know a year to build. Uh, so that's that's a, the first step. So they don't know what's what's doable. Um, another thing is that a lot of the time. Although MPs, even in the same party, in one sense, are on the same side, they are still competing, right? They all want, they all have their own personal aspirations. They want to be a minister of X, Y, and Z, or they want to be a senior minister or whatever. So they all have goals and things they want to achieve. Um, yeah, so I would, I would say the onus really is on us, the you know, civic society, the constituents, to try and find ways to make our busy MPs who are, you know, spending two-thirds of their time trying to make sure they get re-elected. If we can find ways to make them more effective, even, you know, 5% more effective, 5% of the time times 600 MPs times four staff, right? That's a, that's a lot of time. So if we can save time, if we can improve their workflows, that's, you know, we're the ones that are uh, winning the most as civil society, not the MPs. I had a conversation with some of the participants and they spoke about projects like these, really wanting to continue them. It's probably a lot easier with Google Docs, but even a small application, it requires some kind of funding to maintain, even if it's just hosting, even if it's just contributors' time or simple, um, simple really low expenses really i want to get on funding open source projects especially when you talk about civic tech civic tech and and more technology for good what are your views on really funding open source because we we obviously know about some of the biggest open source projects that have the biggest backers in the world but what are, what about ones that are local communities and small towns um i think you know, funding open source is a huge and complicated and multifaceted thing. Um, and it's very contextual. But one way of um, one way of funding open source is to, to support a community, maintain a community, and that's what Hack the Press, which we run as well as Tory Text, is all about. You know, maybe funding open source means buying pizza. Maybe it means inviting people into your living room. Um, maybe it means financial support for for the developers and we're also building a, a crowdfunding tool that helps with that called gift gift.org and part of part of the, the thought process behind that is helping things start and then continue going you know, in an ongoing way so a bit like patreon and a bit like kickstarter for starting ongoing projects um and i think really having some continuity in a community is the most important thing to keeping an open source project around because it's holding each other accountable. You know, if we, what we're planning to do with Tory Text as well as Hack Press is having monthly hack nights, which are very easy for us to run. We invite 
people to come along, work on their projects. They've either maintained projects they've already got, contribute to the Google Doc, or build a new thing over an evening or start building a new thing. And then they get dinner in, in return. And hopefully through that, we can start building a community of people that are holding each other accountable for building and maintaining tools that benefit all of us, as well as kind of having a nice time drinking beer and eating food. No, that, that sounds great because it's definitely something that's needed and the community aspect around it, I think that really supports open source. If I think about some of the open source projects I contribute to, one, it is because of the community, but two, I don't have that personal interaction with them. It's all online. And if I had the personal interaction, that would really strengthen my commitment to the actual project because it's the relationships that ultimately kind of tie me to the project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the um, bigger open source projects I've worked with is called Qit, And every year we have a, a week-long hackathon. Um, and basically they get funding from the Wikimedia Foundation and various other sources. And then invite all the contributors, software contributors, to go and chill out in a villa in Lyon in France or in the last one was in Zurich. And we basically go hang out, work on this open source code together and it kind of is a really good morale boost for everybody. And then everybody sees each other, not just as a name on screen, but as, as a person in their community. That's amazing. And I think my last question would be about really collaborative spaces. And we, we touched on it right at the beginning. How would you, going forward, what would you change? What would you, what would you keep the same? What are your views on innovation and really bringing together bringing people together to solve problems uh do you mean is it in a general sense yeah more more, more in a gen- more in a general sense not specific to tory techs more in a general sense i think people like it when they're being talked to directly uh and i think that's often why it's quite hard to get people to help solve help you solve a problem because you say I have this problem that's applicable to loads of people how can we solve it so we didn't try and solve this MP or we didn't try and improve the state of the MP offices by going out on the street and saying hey you may not know it but you have an MP you should (laughs) care about their effectiveness come to us and help us make it better we went to people that already have beliefs and we said we have similar beliefs and these are the things that that means these are the things that we can we can affect so with the Tory text hackathon it was if you're you know conservative and you're a technologist then we kind of link over two things two beliefs two two ways of doing things right and then we say now these are some things that we also care about together so we already get that that hook in um and then keeping that continuity going afterwards is important with hack the press it's hey you're a technologist and you care about the news and then we keep that conversation going. So we build the community and we continually kind of a part of it and keep running more events for the same group of people. I think the one-off of hackathons that companies or, you know, organizations often do, like I think we met at a travel hackathon yeah. being run by a, a travel travel agency company. Um, and they run a one-off hackathon, but in lots of different places. And 
now, I, I mean, I know that the project that I built at the hackathon has died because of Heroku expiring something. And I haven't gone around to fix it because there's no one, I don't feel responsible to anyone to keep it running. Um, I don't feel kind of that it was, you know, when I built the thing, I wasn't trying to add value to, to the company or to the world. I was just building it because I thought it'd be fun to present. Um, and I think that's a big difference is being part of a community that cares about an issue or being, you know, just showing up, writing some code and then going home. And do you think that, do you think that the companies, and and I, just thinking of through this question in my head, it's difficult because hackathons, everyone organizes host hackathons for different reasons. And I want to ask you, do you feel that companies should nurture communities to improve the effectiveness of their hackathons? I mean, let's say that somebody, that a company's reason for running a hackathon is they want to hire people. Um, I think in that case, having like, retaining the community is useful because, you know, you want to hire people now, but you also might want to hire people in a year's time. So what, even if you don't maintain it very well, but you just have a, a list of the people that enjoyed your hackathon last time, in a year's time when you need to hire, you can send an email out, say, hey, we're hiring, and also we're running this, this other hackathon. Maybe you don't even need to run the hackathon because people remember you and like you. Um, and so having a community that you've kind of maintained there is helpful. Uh, maybe you want to run the hackathon to make the world better, in which case you think having a community to support you and encourage you is super important. Um, maybe you want to run a hackathon to improve collaboration between you and your suppliers or something. Maintaining community, I mean, you already have your list of suppliers, right? And surely you want to be in a community with the people that your business relies on. So, I mean, I suppose there are lots of other reasons that I don't, I can't even imagine that one would want to run a hackathon. But I think community in general is, doesn't require a lot of overhead. It might just be a WhatsApp group that you add a bunch of people to. And then every now and then they can kind of put a message in chat. It might be a Slack channel. It might be a Facebook group. But communities often don't take very much effort to do the basic kind of entry. And they take some some manicuring and, and that kind of thing, but it's, it's not... In, it's interesting because I don't... And I'm sure there is a reason that I cannot think of, but I don't think companies nurture communities in that sense. But then again, depending on the company, they do have develop Companies that have APIs and their developer community... In, in, at least in my experience, they nurture the, the the developer community pretty well, especially if they know developers are consistently using their APIs. But when I think about the WhatsApp groups I'm in, the Slack channels I'm in, none of these, for example, the Travel Hackathon, they, they didn't have one. And there's a whole bunch of other hackathons that I went to with notable companies and they don't have that same community. I mean... I think, so the Travel Hackathon, there is a Slack group. And I think Slack is something that people love to use briefly. I mean, I'm in 20 plus Slack workspaces. And that's just since I set up this laptop, right? Because it's the ones I've rejoined since. Um, there are so many different ways to do communities. And at Newspeak House here, or LCPT, we found that a really good way to nurture a community is a WhatsApp group. Because they have a... a feature or a tendency that other kind of platforms don't have in that people leave WhatsApp groups. People generally don't leave Facebook groups or Facebook Messenger groups 
or Telegram or whatever, they just don't read it or they mute it, right? Same with email groups. They just mute it or they just ignore the Slack channel or leave the, you know, close the Slack channel, but they stay in it. With a WhatsApp group, you know that the people in there in general are actively interested in the thing that your group's about. It's very rare that people just mute it and stay in it if they don't have some balls in the game. So that's quite a useful way WhatsApp, just the way people relate to WhatsApp has been quite a useful thing for us in building communities. Well, I wanna I wanna thank you, Joe. That's about time, but it was it was very insightful. I think there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn and a lot to share with other organizers about building building communities and building spaces where everyone can feel welcome. I did. I think you did a good job. I do look forward to your next hackathon, and. I, I wish you luck because I think you've you've gone down a what in my opinion organizing a hackathon is very difficult because you have a lot of stakeholders you have your participants partners sponsors but I think you've done it well so I want to thank you and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. <laughs>